This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, another company on the front lines when it comes to the virus is Surgical Solutions. Alyssa Rapp is the CEO of Surgical Solutions, and she joins us on the phone from Illinois. Alyssa, so great to have you here with us. First of all, um, how are you doing? What's the situation in Illinois? How are your workers doing? Oh, thanks for having me. We actually have our 200-plus frontline healthcare workers in 30 hospitals across nine states. And what we're seeing is a lot of probably what you're reporting on. It's obviously we're hit the hardest in New York City, where we're still in the eye of the storm, but starting to see things abate in places like Michigan and Tennessee, where we're starting to see elective surgeries begin to be rescheduled starting in the second half of May. And so give us a reality check here, Alyssa, because I feel like, you know, we hear from governors, we hear from the president and the vice president, the coronavirus task force, PPE is, you know, all that we hear about. I mean, I don't think the <laughs> average person really knew what PPE was before. They certainly do now. Uh, what's sure. the reality check on where we are broadly and, and then more specifically, if you can, in terms of the the needs and, and how those needs are being met? So PPE was a real issue, and it was as dire as you probably reported on as of about a month ago. Mm -hmm. And in some places in this country, it is still dire. But in our experience, things, again, there have begun to improve. Sourcing has improved. Our frontline team of 80 in New York City, it was we had to we had to import our own PPE for the protection of our own people as of a month ago. And now things are starting to um, calm to a dull roar. Now it's a much different issue. There is a desire for elective surgeries to be rescheduled. It's not just to have the system be up and running, but things that were elective can become emergent if they don't get rescheduled. Uh, And so we are starting to see places like Tennessee and Texas and Western Michigan begin to start putting some elective cases back on the calendars. And then the issue is in PPE. The end the issue for firms like Surgical Solutions and others are how quickly do we bring back employees who may have been furloughed, how quickly do, yeah. how do we think about uh, the recovery? Is it going to be all at once or is it going to be more gradual? Well, and I'm curious, too, what you're hearing about patients themselves feeling comfortable about going into hospital settings at this point, right? Because we've been told, stay home for a good reason. But I do wonder, as we start to re-enter world and go back to a normal or as normal as it can be, how comfortable folks will be, you know, stepping into, you know, um, a hospital or healthcare setting. It's an excellent question, and I think it really comes down to the sites of service. So the degree to which a hospital can segregate the sites of service for COVID patients and non, or even within a system, designate sites as COVID sites and non. If you or I were going in for an elective procedure, like a laparoscopy or an endoscopy, and we knew it were to be outpatient, and it was at a site that is a designated non-COVID site, well, Mm. we'd probably feel okay. But it's our ability to manage COVID and make sure that that's being managed properly and swiftly and excellently, and then we can start bringing in healthy patients again for routine uh, procedures. I do wonder, and I, I don't know, Jason, if you think about this, I think about this when, you know, taking my daughter to see her pediatrician when she was younger and there was the healthy area and the non-healthy. Right. Or not, you know, the, the where people were fighting sick, things. Sick kids, well kids. Sick kids, right? And, yep. and so I do wonder if it's just going to be that on steroids going forward when it comes to the healthcare community to make everybody feel comfortable about the environment. I think, 
I think there's that approach for patients for sure. And then there's a whole other consideration set, which is the healthcare worker. And right. the degree yes. to which we can get antibody testing in a broad way for all Americans will change all of our feelings about, quote unquote, returning to normal. But the degree to which we can have our employees and our frontline, frontline healthcare workers antibody tests so we can all walk around with a COVID card. If you knew you had the antibodies as a healthcare provider or a patient, you would be less trepidatious about going back in. You know, Alyssa, I do wonder, especially given your background, which is is fascinating. We and unfortunately we don't have time to get through all of it. But you know, you were the CEO of Bottle Notes. You're a lecturer at Stanford and at the Booth School. You understand both the philosophy and and practice of business. You also, I believe, have done some work with the Illinois Housing Authority. So, I mean. And Illinois is a place, and, and we interviewed the mayor of Chicago recently and just talked about this, the haves and the have-nots when it comes to this virus and so much that's been exposed here. You're seeing this through all aspects of your work. What has it taught us? What can we do in the short and the midterm to maybe mitigate some of the, the really hard facts that we're learning here about who gets what when? I think that your point is the right one, which is there's a short-term crisis to manage and there's a medium-term desired outcome to plan for. And Mayor Lightfoot's an extraordinary leader and a friend. And we all need to make sure that access to preventative care Mm. and access to well care for all of our children across Chicago, of course, Illinois, and the country is addressed on the the backside of COVID. As it relates to what's being done right now in, in my backyard, as I'm sure you've seen, you know, a lot of pop-up hospitals here and in other major metropolises are what we have to do to make sure there's adequate care for all of our impacted um, citizens. Because when you don't have social distancing, is hard. Yeah, it's just not that easy, and it requires a level of independence and oversight and physical space to do it. Right. And that is not evenly distributed amongst our population. So that's going to take a, a medium term a medium-term solve. Well, and social distancing essentially is much easier for people of means. I, I think that's just a, a fact, right? It, 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 it Unfortunately, social distancing is easier when you have space and you can access digital e-learning through digital technologies and you have space to do your work from home and you don't have to be uh, somewhere to do it. And those are all, by definition, things that are related to socioeconomics. Yes. Just got about 30 seconds. You know, earlier the New York City uh, mayor said that they're going to create their own strategic reserve you know, um, and it's all about, I feel like we're federal versus states right now. Is that what we're going to see states having to do at this point? I, I, I would like to think we will not have to go there. I'd like to think we can be a coordinated, unified team federally and statewide. But it's, you know, I think that what we're seeing today is that the decision of whether to reopen or not is going to ultimately be relegated to the governors. And then what's going to be done will not yeah. be across the country and how that will ripple effect and will there be a resurgence in the fall, yeah. well, time will tell. Alyssa, come back because we would love to talk some more with you. Uh, as Jason said, your background is just so impressive and just crosses so many different areas. So hopefully we can get you back soon. Alyssa Rapp, CEO of Surgical Solutions, on the phone from Illinois. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We throw around the word unprecedented a lot uh, these days, Carol, but what's happening <laughs> in the oil patch certainly is that. Let's get into it with Stuart Glickman, head of energy research over at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Uh, Stuart, great to have you with Carol and myself. I know it's an incredibly busy time. I guess to start, let's just briefly take 30 seconds, remind people what we're seeing and why it matters so much. 
Uh, thanks for having me, Jason. Uh, so what we're, what we're seeing is unprecedented because we've never had uh, the contract for, for West Texas Intermediate uh, WTI, which is the U.S. benchmark. We've never had that contract go negative before. Uh, it, it seems kind of um, un, un, indecipherable at first glance why, why that price might be negative. And what it really reflects is uh, a fairly thinly traded contract that was getting close to expiration uh, and a handful of speculators uh, got burned on it. Um, I think a better indication of where things are in the oil markets is probably the next contract, the June mm-hmm. contract, right. which is also down considerably over the last couple of days, too. Well, that's what I wanted to go to, um, Stu, is that it's not right. Okay, we get kind of, I guess, what happened with the most recent, con- you know, the contract that's expiring. But even, mm-hmm. you know, the forward-looking contract is under a lot of pressure. The- tell us what that is. Is is it the supply story? Is it the lack of demand story? Is it both? What is go? You know, we know this sector's been under pressure. What's the big story here? Yeah, Carol, it's it's really both. So what you have on the one hand is you have a plummeting demand. So demand that is normally in a steady state around 100 million barrels a day has dropped perhaps by a third in a very short period of time. You still have a lot of supply making its way to. Um, you know, not, not just the U.S. market, but other markets as well. But mm-hmm. you have so much supply, and if you're a producer and you don't like the price that you're going to get at the pump, uh, excuse me, at, at, for, from your refiner, normally you just throw it into storage, which is a viable option so long as you have available storage. And I think what the market is telling us is that we're getting very worried about hitting a, an upper limit on storage, uh, and that's why prices are reacting in the way they are today. So what does this mean for a typical investor who's looking at this? You know, an investor, maybe a small investor who's also a consumer, because, you know, I get all sorts of tweets and texts from people saying like, well, I guess it's going to be cheap. Not that anybody's going anywhere. But mm-hmm. what does it actually like play this through the economy beyond the folks who do this for a living and sort of trade these futures for a living? What does it mean to the everyday person for the next three, six months, especially amid this pandemic? Yeah, so, so the U.S. economy is now an, a net exporting nation. Uh, right. the U, you know, U.S. production through lots of innovation by small companies has really built out its production potential. And so, you know, yes, at the pump, if you happen to need to drive somewhere, you can fill up for cheap. The problem is that the pandemic is disrupting the natural mechanism, which would normally stimulate more demand, right? Right. Uh, and in the meantime, if you are tied to the production of crude oil, and there are, you know, there's a handful of states where it's a really meaningful piece of overall economic activity. You've got Oklahoma, uh, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, North Dakota, all, you know, all, all that have, have all benefited uh, from, this, from the surge in oil production in the last 10 years, but really now are, are kind of taking it in the teeth um, because, um, you know, there's just, there's just way too much supply and not enough demand. So what does this mean globally? Like, I just think about Saudi Arabia. Yeah, like, I, I just think... This is what I want, like the bigger picture, Stu. Like, what mm-hmm. does this mean? We know they've been struggling as we've seen oil prices go down. This is such a big part of their economy. But what's the bigger story here? The, the bigger story is that everyone across the board is struggling, uh, and there is really no place to hide. So think back about a month. Six weeks ago, April, excuse me, March 6th, Russia and Saudi Arabia walked away from the bargaining table because they could not agree over one and a half million barrels of of production cuts. Yeah. A month later, because of this crisis, they, they agreed to, to cut effectively 10 million barrels off the world market, which 
is historically massive and yet still completely insufficient. Right. And what that tells you is that demand has really just fallen off the table. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's it's just remarkable when you look at it. I really appreciate that perspective. Thank you so much. I feel like this is a story yeah. that I want to be able to walk out of a conversation like that. And I do feel uh, a lot more informed, you know, and I think people need to understand it, not just from the perspective of like, whoa, those are big numbers, but more how this plays out as you rightly pointed out, Carol, globally, because Saudi obviously has geopolitical uh, implications Huge. as well. We know that to, to be true. Well, Sir and Clickman. I think, Jason, it was happening anyway, but it's yeah. been exacerbated because of this crisis and, and demand has just come to a stop. So yeah, yeah. for sure. Stuart Glickman uh, is the head of energy research over at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone uh, from New Jersey. Smart guy, for sure. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. There are two things we love on this show. One, data. We love numbers. Totally. We love being able to explain things. It's our training uh, at Bloomberg. We're very much in the midst of that, all the way up to our founder. The other thing we love on this show, Sean Donnan. Just yeah. can't get enough of that guy. Senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C., as is... Of course, the man himself, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Can I just say, the sky's just opened up. And I don't know whether that's Sean and Joel's power. (laughs) I don't know as you introduce them, but literally, thunder and lightning just went crazy. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, outside my window here. <laughs> All right. So, Joel Weber, you, I think you agree with me. We love data. We love to be able to prove things. I think about the Bloomberg 50 and the fact that it's got to have a number around it. This story is all about numbers. All about numbers. Um, and, and, you know, I think this was um, one that really started with Sean, as I get to some thunder in my background as well, really sets the table for talking about data, right? <laughs> totally. Uh, um, but the numbers are failing this time. Why is that, Sean? Well, I just, you look out there and we look at this great big economy that we've got and you're trying to reach for some data to show you what's happening in there. And the reality is you look at the normal economic data that we rely on, the non-farm payrolls, the inflation data, all of that stuff, and it's just not telling us what we need to know right now because this thing's just moving too fast. And that tells us something bigger. Here we have you know, ostensibly the biggest economic crisis of our lifetime, and yet the data we rely on to measure the economy isn't keeping up. Well, I w- for something new. I love this line in your story. Peering into our future might be easier if we knew with certainty what happened in our immediate past. Yeah. I mean, to get an idea, this is what Jason and I talk about so much, and I'm assuming, you know, Joel and your team, it's like, what does life look like post-COVID-19? But unless we can kind of trust the data that we're dealing with now, we really don't know, right, Sean? And we don't have the data yet on, on, on our immediate past, a lot of our immediate past. That first quarter GDP, those three months to March, the first reading we're going to get of that is April 29th. Mm. The data, you know, the one that we really care about, that the second quarter that we're in now, where most economists agree the big downturn is happening, we're not going to get that until the end of July. All right. So this is such a great read in part because there are some history lessons uh, in here, some callbacks the McNamara fallacy. Tell us about that, Sean. Right. So there was this grim bit of data that uh, the American military operated uh, and really planned the war around uh, in Vietnam for, for years, and that was body count. Literally, from the ground on up, they were reporting the number of enemy combatants killed uh, on a daily basis. And commanders back uh, in Washington were using that to assess how the war was going. The problem was is that you got some really perverse incentives in the system there where 
uh, commanders on the ground whose careers depended on this data were inflating the data and reporting that back up uh, all the way to Robert McNamara, uh, who was then leading the war effort uh, in the Kennedy administration. And um, he was looking at these daily body counts, thinking the war was going great uh, for years, that the U.S. was winning, when in fact it was losing quite heavily on the ground. The McNamara fallacy is what came out of that, and that is what happens when policymakers in particular, but it could be investors, uh, quants, it it can be uh, uh, politicians, business leaders, CEOs, when they have their nose in the data and they ignore what is going on in the world around them. And that leads to just some really bad choices and, and some big mistakes. And so that's, you know, that's the downside of data. Right now, we don't have the data we need. At the same time, we can all look out into the world and know that things are not going well. So do we need to think yeah. like – oh, go ahead, Joel, please. Well, it's, I was just going to say, you know, like there is, we're not totally driving blind here in that there are places that, you know, the Federal Reserve – and the GDP now index, Sean, is one way that we have attempted, that, that economics has attempted to kind of put its pulse on the now. Yeah, uh, but so, even that has its limitations. Right. So, so what, we're, what we're starting to do now, and you're seeing it in, in a lot of the alternative uh, pieces of data that we're all looking at. Uh, people were looking at open table bookings there for a while uh, at the beginning of this crisis, just that collapse uh, in, in reservations through that booking app. Uh, reservations at restaurants that that happened in cities as the shutdown orders went through. Uh, We've been looking at TSA security clearance data to show the number of air travelers. We're looking at uh, traffic data, electricity usage data, all of that stuff. But all of that is is kind of partial. It's not necessarily reliable. And while the Federal Reserve and a number of the regional feds have put together uh, these efforts to try and measure short-term GDP and the Atlanta Fed does this, uh, the New York Fed has has played with this, the Philly Fed has played with it as well. Um, None of those things are really reliable enough uh, to count on yet. So we need that data. We're looking for that high-frequency data, but we don't yet have that magic data that we need. What makes me nervous is not having that magic data is that here we have policymakers trying to figure out what's the right steps to take. We're going to be talking with Paul Krugman and get his take on this um, a little bit later on our, our broadcast. But I do wonder, Sean, like if we don't have that magic data, might we be taking the wrong policy steps right now that will hurt us later on? That's absolutely the risk. Uh, We really don't yet know where the damage is in this economy, the U.S. economy right now, and that means you can't necessarily target the policy response uh, to the right areas. And that's something uh, that we're going to be adjusting or that policymakers are going to be adjusting uh, or in dealing with a lot in the months to come. Well, and it's interesting too, Sean, you know, you talk about China in your story, uh, which, you know, normally I feel like in, in normal times, whatever that used to be, you know, we would look at Chinese GDP data and things like that. And be like, Well, you can't really trust them, but we have these other ways to do it. Unfortunately, now, literally life and death decisions are being made based on data that we have from China, which we now know probably isn't reliable. And global leaders, central bankers, presidents, heads of state, they're making decisions on that data. How worried should we be about China here? 
Well, yeah, China has 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 always been a question in, in terms of its data. There's also clearly now uh, there are some big questions over how they covered up the data right. early on, in particular, in, in in whether they are continuing to cover up uh, the health data. Uh, but we also know that Chinese leaders have, for years, had their own ways of adapting to bad data. And Li Keqiang, who's the premier uh, right now, famously about a decade ago, sat down for dinner with the then Chinese ambassador when he was a a provincial leader. uh, And he said, look, I don't trust our own GDP numbers. So I look at three things. I look at freight movements, I look at bank loans, I look at electricity usage, and that tells me what's happening yeah. in the Chinese economy. Amazing. You know what? We're all kind of leaking China right now. We're all we're becoming all, like, we're all exactly. becoming, yeah, or hedge fund people, right? Hedge yeah. fund investors looking exactly. at, you know, different metrics. Sean Donnan, we do love you and adore you. Uh, everybody, it's in the magazine, online, it's a must read. Sean Donnan of Bloomberg News, and our thanks to Joel Weber, who we also adore at Bloomberg News this week. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. With us is Jimmy Cuellar, Portfolio Manager at the Buffalo Small Cap Fund. Joining us on the phone from Mission, Kansas. Got to point out that fund, a top performer beating just about all of its peers over the past five years, returning on average nearly 8% annually. Jamie, good to have you here with Jason and myself on Bloomberg. How are you? And, and tell us a little bit about what's going on in Kansas. Uh, I am doing well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, we're uh, quarantined like everybody else, so uh, a lot of the same. And so what do you make from the market uh, of the markets uh, sitting there in Kansas? Because, you know, we, I feel like our view is a little bit colored by, you know, a day-to-day that is probably similar to yours uh, in in broad strokes in terms of, you know, work from home and all that stuff. But, you know, being in the epicenter, I, I do think that that changes maybe our, our perspective a little bit uh, to the negative. As Carol pointed out, you have done extremely well uh, by any measure uh, in the markets and focusing on, on small caps. How do you cut through the, the noise and find the signal here? Uh, yeah, well, um, typically, you know, w- we do have the same issues, obviously, that's going on in New York. Clearly, we don't have as bad of the cases as, as you guys yeah. are having there. And uh, it is a slower pace here in Kansas, thankfully. Uh, but we do obviously have the same concerns. Um, you know, the, the market volatility that we're seeing uh, hits it's just as hard. Um, you know, as far as, as how we're kind of handling all of this, uh, we have a, a, a process that really kind of doesn't change despite what's going on in the economy. We tend to invest in companies that benefit from long-term trends, and those trends are going to remain intact regardless of what the economy does. But uh, obviously we're having to scrub our portfolio and make sure that uh, – you know, companies, uh, they will be impacted to a certain extent uh, by a weaker consumer and a slower economy. Uh, and clearly work from home is it's changing everyone's work environment. Um, but we're really uh, looking for, uh, you know, those companies that are positioned well during this and hopefully will actually come out of, uh, uh, of this even stronger uh, 
provided they have a decent opportunity for recovery. Well, Jamie, I'm curious about kind of changes you might have made then to your portfolio. As I mentioned, your fund has done really well consistently. It's not just a one-year thing, but over the past five years, at least based on Bloomberg data. So have you made any changes because of the situation, because of the virus impact? Um, Tell us about that. Uh, Yeah, we've made a few changes. Uh, Thankfully, once we saw this start to hit, we really took a look, especially in certain areas like uh, like consumer, um, in terms of, you know, how how hard are these companies going to be hit and, you know, what's going to happen to their uh, revenues overall and what can they do to really, um, you know, pivot a little bit and and change what's going on. Certainly other uh, sectors like healthcare, you know, if you have elective surgery, those are going to be in trouble. Uh, if you're a tech company and you have a lot of small and medium business uh, uh, exposure or, um, you know, you're exposed to, to some industries that could be hit harder, like travel, you know, we really need to scrub through those. We've, we've made a few changes here and there. Uh, we've actually even made some ads, though, as well, companies that we think that could even benefit from all of this uh, overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, you need to make sure that this benefit's going to be sustainable and not just a right. flash in the pan, but... Uh, you know, you know, you really want to find those companies that so, have great management teams that can pivot well through this. So, Jason, I love talking about specific stocks. So give us some names that maybe you've been buying into as a result of this thesis. Well, I can't really talk about ones that we've been buying during the quarter, but i tell you some ones that we do like and have liked coming into this that okay. uh, I think Fair. you could take advantage. So uh, the first one is called LoveSac, uh, which is an interesting name, but it's a, uh, one of our smallest companies we have overall. It's a $150 million market cap company. Uh, so pretty small. They make uh, seating, so a modular sectional couch called a sectional. And, yeah. Uh, and what's uh, probably best described as a modern-day beanbag called the stack. Yeah. Uh, so very innovative products. They sell online as well as through showrooms. Uh, the company got really just trashed uh, through this. They first got hit by uh, the trade war in China, had to adjust their supply chain, and then they obviously had to close all their showrooms due to the coronavirus. So the stock got completely orphaned. Uh, at one point, this was a $40 stock. It traded all the way down to $4. Uh, and it's a founder-led microcap company, which you kind of you know worry about good decisions that manage makes. But these guys have really done just an exceptional job conserving cash, uh, cutting expenses, pivoting their advertising and uh, their customer sales support to really support online. And they reported a couple of, uh, weeks ago, done an excellent job here. Um, you know, they're starting to see a lot more improving trends after a rough couple of weeks. Uh, their e-commerce business is up over 400%. They think that they can be cash flow positive here going forward and actually think they'll be back to plan here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So these guys have pivoted great. Stock's still oversold. It's you know, down to 10 bucks, And like I said, it was up at 40 I think these guys have a lot more to go. And it looks it's like so no debt. And it looks like no debt on their balance sheet. I mean, their, their balance sheet looks pretty cool even with all the stuff that's going on that's right you know they're not a big company but you know, yeah. they got about 35 million in cash i think they're yeah. going to be a survivor and you know these survivors and especially in consumer that can make it through this they're going to have a lot less competition going forward and they're going to be winners I remember uh, hearing about this. The ticker is Love, L-O-V-E. I believe uh, Dave Wilson, our stock editor, had it as his stock of the day a while back, and I just remember being uncomfortable hearing Dave Wilson say Love Sack. Uh, in any case, <laughs> uh, bandwidth, uh, B-A-N-D, uh, is another one you like. Only got about 40 seconds here, but give us the pitch on that. Yeah, so this is a cloud-based communication services company. Um, they use their software expertise to get enterprise customers to carry their voice uh, and even more so these days, they're messaging over bandwidth network, which they own themselves. Uh, 
So they carry voice traffic for a lot of the next-gen cloud-based service hmm. providers, companies like RingCentral, 8x8, uh, Microsoft Skype for Business, and even uh, they'll do some audio for video conferencing companies like Zoom, which, as everyone knows right now, is just crushing it. Um, so right now, their, their customers are all market share gainers. Um, they're getting bigger and bigger, more strategic accounts. They've been expanding into Europe with a lot of their customers. Uh, and like I said, they own their own network. Right. So incremental margins here on, on incremental revenue are going to be outstanding. And again, balance sheet's in great shape here. Just yeah. to convert, head into this. Solid, solid uh, balance sheet, and they're looking good going forward. Interesting well, time to be a stock picker. Uh, I that love is this. for sure. I love the bottoms up analysis. All right, Jamie yeah. Cuellar, portfolio manager for Buffalo Funds, on the phone from Mission, Kansas. Uh, the Buffalo, I believe, refers to the actual like Buffalo, you know, where the Buffalo roam, not Buffalo. I've New seen York. Buffalo. Have you seen Buffalo? I have, and I've seen your pictures from Colorado. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.